Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Cy Twombly's 50 Days at Ilium. Yale University Press has just published Cy Twombly, 50 Days at Ilium, a monograph about the famed 1978 painting series at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Over the course of the 10 paintings of 50 Days at Ilium, Twombly addressed the Trojan War through Alexander Pope's 18th century translation of Homer's Iliad. The book features the paintings and related works, as well as a series of essays, including one by my guest, Richard Fletcher, a professor at The Ohio State University. His work has long examined how contemporary artists have engaged with classical antiquity. Amazon offers the book for $32. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Sadie Barnett. But first, Richard Fletcher on Cy Twombly, after the break. On February 28th at the Getty Center, here's Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell discuss her biography of the late Romare Bearden, a renowned 20th century African-American artist whose work explores universal themes through the celebration of African-American culture. A book signing follows this free talk. Learn more at getty.edu 360. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16th, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Richard Fletcher, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. I want to start with the end of your essay, in which you talk about being at the Philly Museum with a friend who is a bit skeptical about the whole Twombly 50 days thing. And as you were talking to this friend, a museum guard walked over. What did she say and how did you respond? So the guard had been watching us go around the the works, the 10 paintings. And as as she saw us leaving, she she kind of sheepishly comes up to us and says, look, I've been working here for quite a long time. I can't remember the exact um, amount of time she'd been there. But she said, you seem to know what you're talking about with this. Uh, can you explain it to me? And I was there with my friend who I'd just been doing that and she, my friend wasn't really buying it to some extent. But I, I took that opportunity to kind of run through everything again and kind of dance through the galleries, pointing things to this guard. And I think in my memory, it was a lot more extended an interaction than it actually was. But it did give me a sense of how being present with these works raises questions and puts a responsibility on other people to kind of in, engage with it from their from their perspectives. And I think that's something I've been you know writing through is how to open up this conversation, how to describe this work in a way that didn't establish any one person as an expert of, and especially not a classicist as an expert of this series, that it was intriguing and opened up questions rather than, than closed them down. I think probably most of our listeners have been in the Philly Museum's installation of the work. It's there, There's one work just outside a gallery. We'll get to that work in a minute. And then there are nine works in a single gallery. 
So as you talk about dancing around the installation, you really do have to physically kind of move up and down the gallery to to do that. Do you think that that physical experience of the work, nine, ten canvases, that really require a physical experience, moving around to them, across from them, was part of Twombly's idea of how people would experience the work, even even a metaphor? I think I think definitely, not just metaphorically, but, but Twombly, I mean, this can be this, the physical exertion of the production of the works is, is, is well documented that Twombly, you know, this, this is not the size and scale of these canvases. And in the, the third lesson that I describe um, at Twombly's Academy that in, in my essay is about being there and the, the kind of swirl of the battles of depicted in, in Homer's Iliad catch up the reader in that poem and, and, and Alexander Pope really gets us to that kind of experience of being in the midst of the battle. And I think Twombly was, was evoking that. And this happens because now, obviously, they've been installed in other ways other than in that gallery and, and in a linear format. But there's a, a correspondence across the gallery. So, for example, you have the battle, the Achaeans in battle faces across the Ilians in battle. So the Greeks and the Trojans are on either side of you. And so you're, you are in the midst of that in the gallery space and so you are you can go back and forth between those two having your back to one and twisting around i have one you know when i was invited by carlos Basualdo to uh, have a conversation with him in the gallery space on the event of there being a group of sculptures that were made by twombly at a similar time as the as the series carlos and i were sitting at the front of a group of audience members but i had to move <laughs> i couldn't stay seated I had to get up and start, as I said, dancing around, moving around. And in, and in, in, in my essay, I think I describe that process of when I was a, a teenager first encountering the Roman Forum and moving around it, looking at things, examining things. I remember getting really sunburnt. And I feel like that it, it provokes movement. It provokes, I mean, and, and I think that's one of the interesting challenges of this book. How does this book somehow try to get you into that, the swirl of, the, of, the, of these works and into the, the eddying streams, basically. Ilium is typically spelled I-L-I-U-M, but Twombly spells it differently. He spells it with an A, I-L-I-A-M. Is that important? And if so, why? It is kind of the anecdote, the story that, that, that surrounds this work. And actually, it's, it's it, to some extent, one of my entryways into the work as well, because classicists, this long tradition of the study of ancient Greek and Roman culture, for want of a better word, often gatekeepers to who should be spokespeople for the, those cultures. And so when someone from beyond the, the institutions that teach Greek and Latin and that, that do these, when they engage with antiquity, there's always a kind of a way of capturing a mistake and, a, and an error, a mispronunciation, a, um, bad Latin, these kinds of things that that would kind of as gatekeepers that would disenfranchise that that engagement with antiquity. So it's really important that Twombly put a mistake, a purposeful error in the very title of his work. And when asked about it in an interview with uh, David Sylvester and both uh, myself and Emily Greenwood, who's another author in the Twombly book, talk about it. It's use it's when Twombly responds to Sylvester as he wanted to add the A for the for the figure of Achilles 
And throughout the works, the A of Achilles is often depicted as a, uh, an actually, actually a Greek delta, capital delta, which is like a triangle. And he wanted the kind of the rage and violence of Achilles to be represented in his very name. And this becomes really vital throughout the whole series, the way, in, and actually through all of Twombly's work, the way in which language takes on a, a, a visual role. And also, I would say, his mistake, his purposeful changing of the tradition was one that would appear throughout the series and his other works, which is how do we retell this story with an emphasis that brings a new perspective onto this ancient story, um, just as Homer did when he, he there were many traditions of, of the epic of the Trojan War, and he made the Iliad the story of the wrath of Achilles. Uh, so how did how Twombly did that is often through a kind of emphasis on this character of Achilles, who is Achilles, and it's as if Achilles, Achilles becomes the the author of this work. So, for example, in this series of heroes of the Achaeans, the list of heroes, you have the name Agamemnon kind of whitewashed, taken out of that catalogue, and that's Twombly embodying the position of Achilles as effacing his rival. The main reason why Achilles leaves battle is because of this dispute with the leader of the Greek armies, Agamemnon. So there are many different reasons why that A resonates throughout all the work. And I'm sure I'm missing several others, but that is definitely important. You, you mentioned the way Twombly presents the A of Achilles in the Delta form. We'll have images of, of all of these works up on manpodcast.com. But I thought it might be worth noting that in, in that first canvas in the gallery, Heroes of the Achaeans, Agamemnon's name includes A's the way you and I would write them, whereas the other A's in that canvas are with the Delta A, such as in the word Achaeans. The, the installation in Philadelphia begins with Twombly's Shield of Achilles, wherein or within which Twombly introduces that Delta A for Achilles. And it's outside the gallery that houses the other nine works in the series. What is significant about Twombly's use of Achilles's name in general, and what does it introduce or suggest to us about how he goes on to use names in other paintings of the series? There are, for example, two paintings in the series that are nothing but names. First off, the, the shield as the, the opening image, the opening work in the series, standing somehow outside of the nine other canvases in the main gallery is, is, is really pivotal anyway, because the, the shield of Achilles in Homer's poem is, appears very late on in the narrative in the 18th book of a 24-book poem. And the, the important element of this, this shield is that it is uh, an ekphrasis, so it's a, a literary description of a visual work of art. And so the, it's a very close meeting point between Twombly's process of, of reimagining the the narrative of Homer's poem in Alexander Pope's translation with the, the dynamic between the visual and the verbal. So that's what makes not only the appearance of the shield outside so, so vital, but also the appearance of a kind of tag and calling it Achilles's shield that it may seem like so subtle a, a move, but by not, not calling it Achilles's shield 
and not the shield of Achilles, which is actually the title that we give to this work. If you look at how it's identified in the uh, wall text and things like that, the shield of Achilles. So we start with that A, we start with that Delta. It, it begins with something that is his, it's his shield, it's his narrative, it's his story that will we will be encountering. And I think that the, the very presence of those words with that iconic delta at the beginning balances another element which appears within the shield, which is the swirl of red, kind of rose, red rosette that will become associated with the figure of Achilles uh, throughout the series is, is generating the energy within, the, within the, the abstract image of the shield itself. So not only is there a kind of tagging of the shield as specific to Achilles, front-loading his name and its own kind of iconography with the delta, but also within the shield itself, there's a the presence of a, a kind of abstract portrait or imaginary portrait of Achilles coming out of it. So that interplay of, of word and text the 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 color versus the the line of that work really really is is vital from the very beginning uh, by having the shield as the first work you encounter. I'm I'm glad you mentioned the color and the shield. The shield, in my memory, always lives as being mostly red. But when I look at the image, there there are also blues and blacks and some peach there. These these colors all recur across the rest of the paintings in the series. What might Twombly's use of these colors and indeed his introduction of them in the very first canvas suggest? Actually, just get, let me give you a side note on this, which is Twombly and color. I, I have written, but not published, and uh, talks on Twombly's use of Sappho as a poet in his works, and not only lines of Sappho's poetry, but also his uh, representation of Raphael's school. Uh, not only School of Athens, but also Il Parnasso, a painting in the Vatican of the of the the Muses, and and in that painting, Sappho is represented as a kind of peach color, and this peach appears again in other places where Sappho is there, and it's almost as if Twombly has allocated this color to Sappho, and it's not you know. Although, you know, when he uses lines from Sappho, it's not all the same. So it seems like Twombly is very attuned to how his audiences will identify particular personalities, characters, authors, mythological figures with uh, particular colors. So as we said, the, the, the red of Achilles, the rage of Achilles, that, that started even before this series. He has a series in the 60s of the early 60s, The Vengeance of Achilles, which has a kind of red rocket, phallic kind of straight up kind of triangle, which is, it has a red tip at the end. So there's a kind of, uh, the redness to Achilles is very vital. However, at the same time, the 50 Days of Ilium is not just the story of Achilles. It is the, the kind of tragedy or the, the death of Hector. And Hector is often in this series presented as a bluish, color and the death of Hector in the work uh, Shades of Eternal Night, which is another one of these kind of rosette figures, exudes this this blue color and Hector's name is often written in blue. Uh, for example, when the Ilians are in battle, uh, his name is there in a, in a bluish tinge. And so in the Shield of Achilles, you have this red rosette at the center with a kind of swirl of red coming through, but there's also this blue it appears to kind of 
dissipate into a, a beige white background that also has an element of effacement and death and, and, and Hector's tragedy at the same time. So I don't want to be too prescriptive of this, you know, not every blue equals Hector. I don't think it's like that simple in Twombly, but he's definitely setting up a an interesting kind of interplay between the Greeks and Achilles' redness and, and, and Hector in the blue. We have been going through a bunch of names already. I think that's probably inevitable with, with this series of paintings. And you write in your essay about Twombly turning names into cannon fodder. That, that's your actual phrase. How did you spell it? How did you spell cannon? And why did you choose that spelling? So I actually spelled it both ways, one with one N and with two Ns, because, you know, given that this is a, a, a series about a war, a battle, that similar to classes, we often kind of disengage from the the real world relevance of, of the things we're focusing on. And we can talk about bloodshed and death in battle and not think that that conversation is, is ongoing. And actually, uh, a very interesting book on Saitwombly that came out a few years ago by Mary Jacobus, a Saitwombly poet, reading Saitwombly, poet and paint, is she focuses on the idea of this series being created as a response in some ways to the Vietnam War and the ideas of the name and the more memorialization of the names of, of fallen soldiers as a kind of, do we remember them enough? Do we remember them? Are they effaced? Are they forgotten in this way? So the the, the canon of the, the 2N canon is, is there, and these names are names that are uh, remembered as figures that have, have died, as well as remembered as part of a tradition that has certain longevity in, in the study of Greek and Roman culture. But then also the spelling it with the one end, the canon, the way in which these names create an association that it's almost like by the mentioning of these names, you become part of a, an elite group that knows when we say Achilles, we, if you just mention that name, you know about it. I mean, one of my favorite examples of this isn't really even a name. It's the uh, the way classicists often bandy about this, the number of a poem uh, written by an ancient poet. So for example, Quintus Horatius Flaccus, who is known to us as Horace, notice that there's a difference in <laughs> their Roman name and the, the anglicized name. He has a poem that's often abbreviated to Exegi Monumentum, which is, I've created a monument more lasting than bronze. And classicists could just say, oh yeah, Horace 330, meaning the 30th poem from his third collection of odes. And that shorthand is an easy way for a, a group to identify who is in the know. And I think these names uh, operate, even though, of course, they, you know, they appear in painters' work, they appear across a whole range of, of poetry and, and literature, as well as in movies and, and music and all these kinds of things. They, they clue us into a certain canon. And I think that Twombly was very attuned to the accusation of a certain form of elitism in his use of these names, that he was at uh, having a particular historical moment of a kind of renunciation of a kind of modernist tradition of, of the use of names in abstraction and these kinds of things as a kind of just code for being part of a Western tradition. I think he makes the name open to reinterpretation, contested meanings, and uh, instability. And so therefore, 
the canon itself in the work of Cy Twombly becomes canon fodder, basically, becomes, suffers and and dies. I, I don't know if Twombly is used to ground a certain elitist view of Greece and Roman culture as central to the Western civilization, they, then that view is to some extent, uh, I would argue, a kind of misreading of Twombly, because I think he, as I say this phrase that I quote from another art historian, he organizes and blurs that tradition. He pulls it apart to see how it works and invites us to do the same. And I was really emboldened as a classicist to do that. I felt Twombly taught me and gave me a kind of hypothesis for how to deconstruct the canon of, of, of my discipline through this kind of irreverence. Really. Another thing about Twombly turning names into canon fodder, Twombly completed this series in 1978. We know from related works that he begins working on it and certainly thinking about it a year or two earlier, so 76, 77. The last few Americans who, who left Vietnam leave in 1975. And you in your essay relate Twombly's use of names to Maya Lin's use of names in her Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., which opened in, I think, 1982. Are you thinking about nudging us toward the idea that in, 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 in this 10 Canvas series that Twombly is specifically thinking about or even responding to Vietnam? This is a clarification of the, of the question. So this is not my argument. This was Mary Jacobus's argument that Twombly um, was directly referring to U.S. citizens uh, killed in the Vietnam War. And she's the one that, that, that related to Maya Lin's monument. The specific point I was bringing in was how the names of the, the dead that stem from a kind of the idea of memorialization of the name in antiquity as well as as well as today is is something that's happening the naming and the listing of names is happening in the in, in the series too and the the erasure of names the the way in which certain names are chosen certain names are are not becomes uh, resonant with with such processes of, of of remembrance that that was happening at the time of vietnam so uh, in in the aftermath of vietnam uh, so i i was very interested in, in, in what Mary Jacobus was saying. And I think it's really vital that we identify contemporary context for Twombly's work, not just maintain a kind of vacuum of it, him sitting with his Alexander Pope and then painting. I mean, definitely, definitely elements. So, however, I, and this is something that distances me from an art historian uh, I'm not, it's not vital for me that Twombly was engaged with this. I think another interesting element is that Twombly was supposedly painting the series, listening to Wagner's uh, Ride the Valkyrie. And I can't help but think of Apocalypse Now and then think about that kind of connection. I can't even remember if Mary Jacobus makes that connection. But the idea that we we have to create that as a, as a, as a framework. I guess when we create those frameworks, you wonder why the artist was somewhat reticent to make them explicit in interviews and things like that. So when an art historian kind of creates that as a hypothesis, as a, as a, as a framing, uh, I think it's uh, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And it's definitely a valid reading. And, and I think we should interpret and read and, and engage with Tommy's work in relation to contemporary warfare and contemporary memorialization and some of the 
the problems of this, for example, even the in the uh, memorial for the World Trade Center, there's a line from Virgil's Aeneid that's used uh, in a strange way in relation to what it's actually <laughs> the original context. So the triangulation of, of, of ancient references and contemporary context in this relation of, of war and memorialization is really, really vital. And there's some great work by classicists and others that have thought about how the epics of the Iliad and the Odyssey are are works that are vital for engaging with battle trauma and the aftermath and you know the, the Odyssey is a narrative of homecoming and so I think that's a whole framework that, that Mary Jacobus's argument is within and then the other thing that makes me think of it too is you know myelin can we can talk to Myelin about <laughs> about this this process. I mean, she her name was made by this memorial. She was so young when she won that contest that you know how how does that memorial resonate with ancient memorials with the name as it appears in other contexts? So I think that there's I, I I'm not an art historian in some ways because I maybe too much privilege the voice of the artist as uh, a gateway to the interpretation of their work. And so uh, I'm all for speculation, but I think we need to be guided by the, by the artists, um, some of their frame of references for these works. We talked about this a little bit before, but I want to make it a little more explicit. You note that Twombly is quite often in, 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 in quite a number of the canvases looking slightly askance at the past and the historiography of the, the classical past that he's... I don't know if I'm borrowing your phrase here or not, I don't remember, but that he's wielding parody a bit. How so and why is that idea important across across the series of, of paintings? In relation to what we were discussing about the canon, I think it's important that Twombly is engaged with direct reading and, and experience of Homer's poem through uh, Alexander Pope's translation. But at the same time, I guess what we could say, focalization of this narrative through Achilles is taken to another level through imagining this this series as a kind of testament of that hero. So it's a biased, it's a somewhat petulant reimagining of the of the story, and we use the example of the kind of effacing of Agamemnon's name, and you know, you very interestingly, and I hadn't had seen that before, thought of the the difference of the A's in, in their name. There's also, this was one of those moments when I ran across the gallery to point this out. In the in the uh, Achaeans in battle, and when Agamemnon's name appears, and then in this, in this canvas, the names to some extent represent the heroes in the act of fighting with the gods, supporting them above, and they're kind of moving across, parading across the canvas. Right next to Agamemnon's name, actually just above it, Twombly has written the phrase drink piss above his name. And you can't help but feel that that is a, a, a direct focalization of Achilles. Now, so if we have this uh, petulant, and, and in the essay, I, I align it with a reading that I really love of Twombly's work by John Waters of the Letters um, of Resignation series, where Waters doesn't just leave the series of indecipherable squiggles and effaced phrasings of Twombly's work, 
but kind of enters into their spirit and imagines what the letter of resignation would be, what kind of abuse you'd want to send to your former boss when you're resigning. And so I, I really align the way in which Twombly presents this narrative as, as kind of grounded in Achilles as, as part of that kind of petulance, part of that kind of humor. And, and I think that that, interestingly enough, has a, a, a very well recognized streak within antiquity itself. I, I start my essay with the tradition of comic poets making fun of Plato and his academy by going back to a, a former hero who the academy was named after, Hecademus. And the tradition of com- comic poets parodying, making fun of, and sending up the austere pronouncements of the philosophers and, and politicians too, is, is well, well documented. And Twombly's registering that. And he doesn't allow the hallowed name to stand uh, for a whole tradition. He intervenes in that tradition and undercuts it and embraces it. I always felt like Twombly was a, a certain type of classicist that was kind of disturbed by how only one version of certain stories got told and not the the kind of the snide and not even snide but the kind of humorous commentary that comes from the establishing of one culture as an authority the the necessary demand that we have to actually pick apart that authority and 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 make fun of it uh twombly twombly does that in his work academy which is very important to me it's one of his earlier works from 1955 i think the the presence of the of the word fuck in across the bottom of the canvas you know is is it's exciting to see in relation to something as worthy and uh, importantly like positioned as an academy um, and he did the same with the the work you uh, olympia as well and this has been discussed by other art historians Twombly's Academy is 1955, as you mentioned. It's at MoMA. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. The character I think any of us knows best from this epic is Odysseus, and he's not here. The one who, the character who figures almost not at all in the epic is Cassandra, and she is. Her name is the biggest name in the canvas that includes her. Why, why do you think Twombly is excluding Odysseus and including Cassandra? Well, just to clarify, so... Odysseus's presence in the Iliad is, he does have a vital role to play in the Iliad. But he's off stage. He's off stage. And he, it's interesting though, the, the, the dynamic between the two poems is a really intriguing one that classes have debated, you know, whether they're the same author, whether they, you know, which came first, these kinds of questions. It's usually considered the Iliad came before the, the Odyssey. But there's a really exciting moment early on in the poem in the Iliad, when uh, Helen of Troy is talking to Priam, the king of the king of Troy, on the walls, and she's describing all the Greek heroes, and she describes Odysseus like a a, a ram who is leading other sheep, a kind of a leader of men, and it's so hard not to read that as an interpretation of the part of the Odyssey when uh, Odysseus and his men escape the Cyclops cave. And uh, they hide under the, the sheep's uh, wool and, and to get out of the cave. And so what this shows to us is there are traditions, even if they're not composed as part of this oral tradition, that know the whole myth, right? The whole myth of Odysseus ahead of time. So Odysseus is there in the Iliad, a major character in the Iliad, but we often transpose his role from the Odyssey onto that Iliad. 
That said, you're right. The absence of the most cunning character in the whole well, the whole maybe the whole of Greek culture is, you know, he's known as Polymertes or man of many wiles, um, much cunning. He he's not here. And and actually, if you go to the the list of the the heroes of the Achaeans, he's not actually mentioned there. And I have a a, a reason for that uh, that actually helps us understand Cassandra too, which is, and this is one of those moments in one scholarship where you're like. You get very excited, but at the same time, you know that there's going to be a, a a backlash about this. But I basically discovered that Twombly's ordering of names, not only in this series but in other works, came from a handbook of classical mythology uh, called the New Century Classical Handbook, published in 1962 by Catherine B. Avery. And in the entry for the Iliad, the the names are listed in a particular order that Twombly follows in, in, in those canvases. And when he's listing the Greeks, he goes the order Calchas, Agamemnon, Achilles, made large and red and violent in the middle, uh, Menelaus, Diomedes, Telamonian, Ajax. And then the last name on that list from the handbook is missing, Ajax the Lesser. But the whole right column, which starts with Patroclus, goes to Nestor and Odysseus, is missing. Now, the name that misses that, that that is missing there that is really pertinent is Patroclus, the the figure who, at least in in the re, he's the reason Achilles goes back to fight, his death, he wore his when he wore his armor, uh, and in post Iliadic traditions, the kind of the, what is the uh, relationship between Patroclus and Achilles? We have fragments of Greek tragedies that say that they had a a sexual relationship. Is this part of the Greek tradition of pederasty, or how does it kind of connect? But but Patroclus appears elsewhere in Twombly's character, very prominently in the the shades of Achilles, Patroclus, and Hector. So Patroclus' absence is is kind of interesting there. But to turn to the question of Cassandra, the same list, uh, well, actually it's different. In Avery's handbook, there's an entry called The House of Priam, and that's the title of the canvas where, as you mentioned, Cassandra is more prominent than anybody else. And it lists the the uh, history of the uh, mythical history of the f- foundation of Troy, Priam and his wife, and then listing of the the 12 daughters of uh, Hecuba and Priam. And then says among Priam's children were Hector, Paris and the twins, Helenus and Cassandra, and then continues to list the other uh, other figures. And Notice that it says Helenus and Cassandra, and Helenus is mentioned, but Cassandra's name is so prominent. Um, so she's there in the list, but she's given a prominence. That she comes above Helenus, if I remember, and they're twins. And the prominence there, as as I've, I mean, it's one of those things where I've thought about it a lot more than I wrote about it in the essay, like why she's so uh, prevalent. And I think, firstly, I. I really register the way her name is written is a kind of visual shudder or judder of, of motion that is kind of a, explaining a some of a trauma of what is to come. And Cassandra is obviously famous for being someone that knew the future but wouldn't be believed. And this kind of question that comes from a post-Iliadic tradition, also one of the Trojan women that was enslaved after the after the defeat of the Trojans. And so her voice, her voice is 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 kind of inserted into the narrative. And I would even say, if I rewrote this again or thought about it further, I, I'd really want to relocate 
Cassandra at the kind of center of this retelling of the story. And as a kind of counterpoint to the kind of petulance of Achilles, what if it's Cassandra that's telling this story? And there's this there have been attempts, there are very important interventions in this, this mythological narrative to put an emphasis on Cassandra, starting with uh, Aeschylus in the, in the Oresteia, the, the significance of Cassandra is really emphasized. And so what does it mean if we, if, we, if we choose between Achilles and Cassandra for telling our narrative compared to if we just balance Hector versus Achilles or, or even Odysseus who is often depicted as the storyteller of this epic. And so, for example, in the recent, well, not that recent now, but the film Troy, you get the actor Sean Bean giving the narrative of, of Odysseus for the story of the Trojan War. And actually more pertinently right now with the, the sad passing of Jonas Mikas a couple of days ago, his film Lost, Lost, Lost begins with the phrase sing Ulysses of what it means to be a displaced person. So Odysseus as the, the standard witness to war and its traumas has been replaced by Twombly by Cassandra, which is very, you know, I, I still don't know where to go with that, but I know that it's it's really vital. You mentioned Avery's handbook. It's it's I think you refer to it as the Wikipedia of of the thing. So the suggestion being that Twombly's usage of it is kind of an undermining, if that's the right word, of of history that he's playing with the, merely by apparently using it, he's he's toying with historiography. The most prominent visual form probably across the series, it's certainly not in every canvas, but but when it is, it's really there, is the form of the phallus, which Twombly uses as a representation of rage and violence. Is Twombly bringing that to the story himself, or are there classical or other sources for it that 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 we might know and think about? As far as far as I know, that that he's bringing that to the story. The as I mentioned, there are fragments of of tragedies that reference the sexual relationship between Achilles and and Patroclus. Well, I mean, this is <laughs> this is one of those questions where you know a psychoanalytic reading of the Iliad would 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 say the phallus is everywhere, even if it's not <laughs> actually kind of represented as as such. So it, it is an element that. Our historians have identified as Twombly's, and and I don't think, as class, as, a, as a, at least as a former classicist, I can think of anything that directly proves as a kind of paper trail. Like, for example, we I don't believe in Pope's translation and version of the Iliad. There's a there's a kind of path to find out why the phallus is really vital. There, there is another route which goes to the chariot and and the idea of this swirling, circular and uh, and a circle with a line, uh, horizontal line facing it, is is often a, a kind of schematic representation of a chariot, kind of a one-person chariot with wheels and then a platform. That you definitely can encounter that that coming out of that swirl. So the the role of the chariot as a uh, as an element is is really is really vital here. That's across a lot of canvases too, including the fire that consumes all before it. Yeah, yeah. So this this swirl and this kind of phallic object. Now, of course, the the importance of identifying this in Twombly, I think, is is one that stems from uh, a tradition of aligning the associations with Greek and Roman antiquity with a certain aggressive masculinity that 
is even represented in sculpture by like the Herms or the iconography of, of the god Priapus and his his phallus. And so and it's often associated with uh, the comic genre as well. And so I think there could be a, a narrative that would describe Twombly's use of the phallus, not only as a kind of question of patriarchal violence and these kinds of questions, but also of a, uh, a comedic presence within within the text, in the, within the paintings. You may bring this up later, but it was very important to me to include Louise Lawler's work, Bird Calls, as part of this discussion of Twombly's work. That It was a, a work that was an audio work where the artist would, an, an early work as well from 1972 originally, an audio recording of the artist saying names of prominent male artists as if mimicking their names as a bird call, and Cy Twombly is one of those names. And it was originally described by Andrea Fraser as a patriarchal roll call. And so the, the setting up of the, the male artist and their prominence and their authority uh, to then be kind of undercut through their very name, the thing that is phallic for them to some extent is, is vital for, for Lawler's work. And then also the other work that we had reproduced in my essay as well was by a Tunisian artist, uh, Nadia Kabilinke, and she, it's a longer story, but she has a series of uh, phalluses kind of as if inscribed on a wall that came from a graffiti in, in Tunis. And I had an exchange with her about saying, oh, this really reminded me of the phalluses in, in, in Twombly's work. And so there's a kind of an element in which Twombly becomes the focus or the target, even consciously or unconsciously, of a, uh, a feminist rewriting of, the, of, of mythology and history by putting a, a different twist on this, well, that sounds painful, twist on the phallus the at the same time. Um, so I think Twombly, and I really believe Twombly opens us up to this. I don't think Twombly is someone, it was an artist who would have closed down such interpretations. You note that at the bottom of the panel, Achaeans in Battle, that Twombly includes a palette and the word artist above above the word palette. It kind of, you know, follows around it. And that there are not dissimilar references or citations in his work earlier in the 1970s. How do you read his inclusion of the palette and the word artist here? Well, I immediately read, read the appearance of the palette as positioning the artist within the canvas. And... There was an earlier work, which not only the uh, Mars and the artist and Apollo and the artist that seemed to have a similar foregrounding of the artist's brush or palette, in the, the foreground of the painting, but there were other works that drawings from a similar period which talked about the artist and his model, and they have a palette in front of an object, a kind of undefined kind of swirl or object, and he's he's depicting it. Uh, so, and I would say that it goes back to a tradition of painting that was a, a, a tradition of witnessing the battle and a, a, a tradition of, of, of battle painting uh, and also a kind of, I would also even say a kind of photographic tradition of, of documentation that what happens if the, uh, the body part of the photographer kind of slips into view and you realize the position that's being presented there. So I think that he's he's there and he's telling us he's there. It is almost like a, a partial self-portrait. And that 
that and even I, you know, identifying the the name of the artist or the word of the artist and the signature and things like that entering into the, into the the plane, I think is, is is there too. So I took that up in the essay as the artist is here, and so are we, and therefore we shouldn't forget our own positionality in relation to this work. And this has helped me in in my kind of transition from my field as a classicist into field of art education and beyond, which is that if the artist is willing to position themselves, then why do we put on this kind of facade of scholarly uh, objectivity uh, in interpreting the work? And, and we could go back to the claims of, of Mary Jacobus of talking about the Vietnam War or Maya Lin or those kinds of representations. Why, why can't we put some of ourselves into our interpretations of of this artist's work if he was willing to do it at the same time. Yeah, I like that idea. I also kind of, I, I guess from my point of view, think of it as Twombly arguing that his language is is a new kind of history painting or, or could be considered as history painting, wanting us to, reminding us to, might be a better word, to consider what he does and where he comes from as engaging formerly the most elite tradition in, in painting's history. And I just follow up on that because the series that I'm always reminded of is a series that was iconic for Twombly's career in terms of it was described as a disaster, uh, was his series Nine Discourses on Commodus uh, from 1963, I believe. And that I, luckily, because my partner is from Bilbao, I get to see very often because I, it's, it's owned by the Guggenheim in Bilbao. So I go there and I study it and I think about it a lot. And Nicholas Culloden has written about it really nicely. And and I think about that painting, that series of paintings, because there's one of the panels where the word artist, so these are panels that it seem to be different stages or phases in the life of the Roman emperor Commodus, famously the Joaquin Phoenix's character in The Gladiator, uh, the kind of gladiator emperor. And one of the panels just says, like, this is like the artist is there. And so we've got this idea of the emperor as a creative force for good or bad or for you know morally dubious reasons and we think about emperors like nero who would perform and questions of when a, an autocrat becomes creative what, what are some of the problems and issues with that and i think that that series really establishes twombly's kind of one of his big questions which is what happens when the freedom of the artist's role is co-opted by a figure of political power and what, what place does the artist have and how do you articulate that freedom when it's been co-opted in this way and so i think that he he's doing that in relation to a whole stream of traditions that have grounded authority and grounded political power and then he in the commodus painting i think that the paintings he, he he hints at that but it's never really kind of been taken in that way or, or aligning the presence of the word artist in the Commodus painting with the appearance of the, the palette in the Iliam series. Perfect place to close. Richard Fletcher, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me, Tyler. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, 
a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Being Here With You, Estando Aquí Contigo, 42 Artists from San Diego and Tijuana, at its downtown location through February 3rd, 2019. The exhibition brings together work by 42 artists and collectives living and working in the San Diego and Tijuana region. Presenting both early career and established artists, Being Here With You, Estando Aquí Contigo, highlights distinctive practices shaping conversations and communities in the binational region and beyond. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Sadie Barnett. Her Dear 1968 is on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego through September 3rd. The installation is the result of Barnett's research into her family history, specifically her father's participation in the Black Panther Party and the FBI's surveillance of him. Barnett is an Oakland-based artist whose work often explores urbanity, architecture, resistance, and survival. Dear 1968 was previously exhibited at Haverford College in Pennsylvania and at the Minetti Schramm at the University of California, Davis. Barnett's been included in group exhibitions at museums such as the Berkeley Art Museum, the Pitzer College Art Galleries, and MOCAD in Detroit. Sadie Barnett, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. Your installation, Dear 1968, the one that's now in San Diego, isn't just about the year, of course, although the, the, the year is a signifier, just a powerful American signifier, right? It's about a specific confluence of events and a specific confluence of events that involved your father, Rodney Barnett, as well as a member of, of his family. I think we've got to start with what that confluence events of events was and, and what is the confluence of events the work addresses? Well, the work uses as source material a 500-page FBI surveillance file amassed on my father during his brief time with the Black Panthers. So he founded the Compton, California chapter of the Panthers in 1968. The document also follows his time working with Angela Davis on her campaign for freedom in the early 70s. And we requested together as a family this file to really see what level of surveillance, what um, infiltration, you know, my dad's involvement with informants, what this really looked like. And we were all pretty surprised to get back this very thorough, very chilling government document. And I knew that it was really my responsibility and my inheritance to figure out how to make this into a work of art to tell both my dad's story and my family's story and to hopefully draw people into the connections that we can still make to these issues today. We're going to come back to inheritance in a little bit. But in terms of the specificity, I mean, we're talking that the FBI's surveillance of your father was so complete that there were 
like verbatim accounts of conversations he had. I mean, we're talking like truly intrusive security state stuff, right? Exactly. They interviewed every employer he's ever had, his coworkers. They went so far as to interview his high school teacher back in Medford, Massachusetts. They interviewed the little old lady next door to where he grew up. There's accounts of informants reporting back what happened at Panther meetings. It's a very invasive document. And it also has this strange quality where my dad is reading these names and remembering, you know, often very fondly, these neighbors and coworkers who, of course, had nothing bad to say about my father. There was no illegal activity that they could find. So the only thing they could go after was his job with the post office. And he was fired from his job. Uh, The reason cited was cohabiting with a woman he wasn't married to. Of course, we know the real reason was because of his political activism. But these are the types of things that we learn through going through the file, which I incorporate into the work in various ways. So you mentioned that your family filed a FOIA to a Freedom of Information Act request to get the file. At at what point after or before seeing it, did you realize that this was going to become something that you would use in your work? So we filed the request in 2011, and it took about four years, actually, of going back and forth with the FBI to receive these documents, which was frustrating and seemed like a long time. But by the time we received the work, it was almost the 50th anniversary of the Black Panthers. And I knew that this would be a part of my work. My work has always been a a celebration of my family, of Black families in America, of the survival and poetry and magic that I often see embodied in these families and in these living room situations, these personal moments that are happening around the politics. So I knew that it would make its its way into the work, but I wasn't sure, you know, it's very weighty material. It's political, it's personal. Oftentimes the Black Panthers, I think, can be reduced to this iconic, you know, leather jackets and the afros and sort of people are really into consuming that image, but not necessarily learning more about the actual politics and the history. So it wasn't until the Oakland Museum approached me to participate in their exhibition that was all about the history of the Black Panthers celebrating the 50th anniversary. And I knew that the work would really be contextualized historically and that I felt was a supportive enough environment to debut the work. And after that experience, I had the opportunity to to grow the work into the exhibition that's currently up at MCASD. So I think most American listeners probably know this, but the Panther Party was particularly strong and vibrant and organized in California, particularly in the Bay Area, particularly in Oakland. And, and, And so it was a natural thing for the Oakland Museum to do. And that's to some extent, explains why so many California museums have been interested in investigating that past, including including through your work. The most striking moment in the installation is two photographs of your father that are hung next to each other. I know, I think I know, why you picked two pictures of him in uniform, as it were. But one's a picture of him in his military, U.S. military uniform. He served in, in Vietnam and another of him is dressed in in his panther duds, as you described earlier. Any particular reason why those two pictures? I mean, I get I get why why the two, you know, why his military uniform and why his panther duds, but why that picture of him in his military uniform? Any particular reason? 
Um, sure. Well, both of these are small Polaroid portraits. First one in the army uniform being 1966, and the second in the diptych, because I really think of it as one work, is from 1968. And I scanned them at a you know really high resolution so that I could blow these small objects up into an almost life-size portrait. And to me, it's really this process of politicization that we see after basically every war in the United States history is that, you know, African-American soldiers come home to a country that they've just risked life and limb, you know, quite literally for, and find that there's still no place for them in this country that they've just been defending. So my father speaks about coming to California after the war. He came to Compton to bury his nephew who didn't survive the Vietnam War. He came to bury his nephew and felt like he was still at war because of the way the police were conducting military-style operations in the Compton neighborhood. And so my father felt that he had to do something. And what he felt was the most progressive, urgent movement was the Black Panthers. And so that's, that's how he joined. And to me, if you look you know, into the face of the, this man in this photo, you really see this young, innocent face who's about to be sent off. You know, he doesn't even know that he's going to end up in Vietnam and comes back, you know, having witnessed these horrible atrocities, but still has enough hope to commit himself to political change. So correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in the artwork, the 1964 photograph is slightly off center within the frame and your father is slightly off center within the photograph itself. While in the the Panther era photo, he's perfectly centered. Is that a specific aesthetic decision? And if so, why? Well, obviously, I didn't take the photograph since but, but I you was, not, it. <laughs> was not born. Um, yeah, there's there's very few photographs that we have from that time. But I felt that both of these were beautifully composed, beautiful color. The flash in the portrait in the Black Panther uniform just sort of creates this shadow figure that I find really compelling. And if you look closely at the 1966 photograph, you can see a lot of details in his environment. So like the art on the wall or a copy of, a copy of Ebony magazine that's sitting on the table and these sort of, again, living room moments that I was really compelled to. So while you don't have a lot of options when you're working with, you know, the few found objects. His niece took those photographs, my cousin Sharon. And I think, you know, there's probably an element of her as this, uh, you know, youngster looking up to this, you know, hero that's probably similar to the way I look up to my father. So there's lots of other stuff in the installation from from wallpaper that, that you had made to the FBI file. Could you talk through how you thought through aestheticizing all of this material? I mean, you know, you went to CalArts, you, 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 you speak conceptual language, obviously. But did you start in any one place? And how did you move through from there? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I felt like that was really the task you know, presented to me was, how do I reclaim this information? How do I have some authorship over this information while also not getting in the way of the information, letting it speak for itself. So it took the form of a few material interventions. So for the piece that's called My Father's FBI File, Project 3, it's just 28 pages um, chosen from the file to point to very particular 
moments and each page is edge mounted on a neon pink plexiglass and hangs about an inch off the wall so you get this sort of queasy maybe dystopian future glow about the edges and then the pages which you know themselves are black and white typed this very 60s officious looking documents with uh, redactions as well as handwritten margin notes and stamps from FBI agents. So I wanted to add on top of that my own lexicon of redactions and gestures, sort of pointing to these unknowable elements and trying to combat a bit of this investigation by saying there's certain things that you just can't know, the FBI can't know, you can't, you know, surveil the magic of these these actions. And so I used spray paint to create some of these gestures, using spray paint both to reference my generation as like this hip hop generation interacting with this 60s aesthetic. And I also felt that using the spray paint, it's it's an evidence of my hand, but it's also translated through the can. So it's a bit less, you know, expressive than to say, draw or paint directly on the documents, which felt a little heavy-handed. I'm always interested in creating a little bit of distance or removal from my hand, but sort of hiding it or folding it in in various ways. And the last material on those FBI documents are these rhinestones. They're like a pink, purple stars, little crowns that you would find at like a craft store. And that was really an attempt to heal some of the pain, some of the trauma that's found in these pages. Of course, it's a necessarily failing attempt because, you know, what can a little rhinestone sticker do? But it sort of points to this sad yet hopeful attempt to put some love onto these very hateful documents. There is a long history of artists uh, using or referring to official documents in art, even if we go back to, you know, Renaissance portraits, you know, you have merchants holding bills of sale or IOUs or whatever. Did you bone up on or think about other ways documents had been used and presented by artists in their work? Or were you just reaching into your own toolkit of, of glitter and glue and stickers and magic? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great toolkit. I really, I, I did start with reaching in to my own you know, arsenal of formal practices and, you know, the things that I really value, which are often minimalism, cleanliness of form. But of course, through showing the work, I've, you know, been invited to look at other works or maybe curated next to other works, like, you know, Jenny Holzer, for example. And I'm also really interested in totally different ways of looking at these documents like in her example, you know, painstakingly recreating them, which is, I think is another, you know, very useful tool that I employed more so in the graphite pencil drawings. So there is one image that appears in this 500-page document. It's a mugshot of my father. And by seeing this image, you know, I was so struck with how a mugshot functions. It instantly dehumanizes someone like they quite literally become a number and just thinking of this you know mugshot of my father sitting on hundreds of FBI desks across the country how easy it becomes to think of this 
person as someone to be eliminated. And I figured that if I were to render this image in hand, you know, perfectly detailed in pencil, perhaps that translation could turn it into a portrait of a freedom fighter rather than a, a mugshot you know, intent on taking away someone's humanity and taking away someone's story. And uh, another time that I employ this technique is through the drawing of J. Edgar Hoover's signature. He, he signs these documents, very truly yours, J. Edgar Hoover, which was just too ironic and chilling not to bring into the story. So someone actually pointed out to me that that drawing is a forgery in a way of his signature. And of course, Hoover was himself a bit of a forgery in the sense that he was living one life, he was living two lives at once, and they they contradicted with each other. We'll have images of the installation on manpodcast.com. If, if listeners go there, they will see that you've framed the mugshot of your father in the, the same way you have framed the two family snapshots. There's kind of an equivalence that you're offering there. One of the things that struck me about the work and its genesis is that in America, we don't question how wealthy people, typically white wealthy people, inherit privilege and money. It's we, we, we just accept that. And of course, well, maybe not of course, but in the first 50 or 80 years of the American experiment in the 18th and 19th century, white Americans debated this and discussed whether our nation was becoming too aristocratic and too much like Europe that way. And then, obviously, we stopped debating it. How interested were you in using this work or making a work to make a point about inheritance and legacy and family and certain kinds of aristocracy even and how they are lived in America? Yeah, I think often about the inheritance as this, you know, ephemeral lessons and traditions but there is a lack there in terms of the substantial, you know, organizational or monetary legacies that have really been undone, um, whether you're, you know, by our government, whether you're talking about, you know, Black Wall Street or the Black Panther Party, which was just, you know, dismantled by COINTELPRO, J. Edgar Hoover. And thinking about what those institutions were really trying to build, right? If you look at the 10-point platform of the Black Panther Party, you know, most of the things on that list have to do with family, have to do with education, with housing, with food, with the very basic needs of taking care of one's community and, you know, on a micro level, family. So to me, you know, while the Black Panthers has sort of been painted with this you know, machismo, bravado. If you really look at the politics, most of it is these very loving acts of care, you know, looking at the free breakfast program, which was sort of one of the essential moments of, you know, galvanizing the community, taking care of the community, which was famously described by J. Edgar Hoover as the most dangerous aspect of the Black Panther Party. But thinking about, you know, what it means to put these organizational resources into feeding and educating children. You know, to me, that's a very tender actual type of, of politic. Black people doing what a whites-led government was not. Exactly. And, and calling to question, you know, making it very obvious that the government wasn't taking care of all Americans. You know, I think also about this inheritance, 
from this, you know, 60s, early 70s moment with, you know, some criticality and some questions. So if you look at the drawing that reads Dear 1968, Love 1984, it's this, you know, in a way it's maybe a love letter to 1968. It's maybe a, a thank you, but it's also you know, leaving space for some of the difficult questions. So there's no actual text in the letter. It's just this salutation and the sign off. But by using this space with all this mark making and drawing labor to kind of meditate on some of the difficult questions, you know, like, what are we supposed to do now? Or why didn't we have a revolution? Why didn't everything change? Why didn't racism go away? You know, uh, what, what should we do now? Why is there no plan? So these are the more difficult uh, aspects of, of the legacy. And of course, some of these things exist beyond language, which is why that drawing doesn't, doesn't begin to try to get into these questions, but just leaves space for them, for them to exist. So the MCA San Diego presentation is not the first presentation of the work. And I think it's changed a little bit from, from place to place. Is that an engagement with or reflection of an awareness of America's present uh, politics, particularly the way Amer the, the Trump administration has so racialized American politics or re-racialized American politics? Yes, um, the, the show has changed a bit, both, you know, because I'm always working and playing in the studio and also because of some things that have developed um, in the last year since this work was first shown. For example, this new category that the FBI has created, or as I like to say, hallucinated, which is this category of black identity extremists. There's been some really great reporting about this, um, like from The Intercept and Democracy Now!, and we basically just see this conflating of black activism with violence again. And so I really encourage people, you know, who look at this work and think, wow, you know, look at this egregious government overreach that was happening. I really encourage them to, you know, hold a mirror up to what's happening today with the FBI and this black identity extremist category or with the ICE agency and really not to, you know, relegate these issues to past tense. You know, it's, it's easy now to look back and see how criminal the Vietnam War was, but we also have to look today at the wars that we're engaged in now. I know this next question gets a little beyond the art, but, but it's probably also there a little bit. So given that white America likes to pretend that racism is in its past and not in its present, it seems kind of pointed that you and your father, who, who must be, what, 74, 75? 73. 73. I'm not good at math. <laughs> um, <laughs> Y'all have done at least one event together related to, to this artwork, a, a moderated conversation. First, uh, of course, what, what is that like to have the subject of an artwork there with you on a stage in front of people talking about both his life and your engagement with his past? Uh, yeah, well, it's been a, a real blessing. I feel like often these projects happen, you know, after someone has passed away or when someone discovers an archive of, you know, someone after their time. And I'm so lucky that I get to share this work with my family and with my father. We've got to do a lot of interviews together, openings together. You know, my whole family always comes out to the openings. It's really like an activation of the work because, you know, people's 
my uncles and my cousins are all implicated into this file. So it's, it's really important to me that they're all there. They've always been supportive of my, of my work, but you know, now that they're in it, it really feels like our work. And my, my father is just a really interesting, interesting guy. And I think for him to be living, you know, in all of the contradictions that any person has, it really can provide a, a more nuanced look at, you know, some of these issues that kind of get flattened out when we think of like these archetypal, you know, personalities. But when you're really looking at one guy, it becomes much more, much more nuanced and specific. And it's also been really fun. <laughs> I'm constantly learning, you know, from my father and from other people's engagement with the work. I feel like it's an ongoing, an ongoing investigation into how much, you know, generosity and rigor can go into future work. And I think I'll be learning from this material for a while. Did did he know you were making this work while you were working on it? Was there kind of father-daughter engagement about about the thing? Yeah, definitely. So both my mother and my father and I you know, combed through the pages together, shared what we thought were important moments or, you know, really chilling moments. We we really spent time together, you know, reflecting on what all of this means. And so it's very much, you know, a, a group effort, I would say, to to tell these stories. Of course, you know, when it came to the formal aspect, I think my father thought, you know, how is this possible to turn you know, this stack of papers into an experience that people can walk into. And then you pointed to your degrees on the wall. <laughs> right. I said, don't <laughs> worry, Pop. I, I got this. I got this. But yeah. Sadie Barnett, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.